everyone. Welcome to our brand new podcast show for the love of books, featuring Indian small press authors who bravely navigate the treacherous waters of self-publishing and marketing, even during the pandemic. I will be your host, Emma, and we're going to have a blast as we move forward to opening up America and enjoying life again in all its dimensions, because We've come a long way, baby, as Gene quoted in one of his essays. It is my pleasure to present to you author Gene Wilburn, who has co-authored with his wife, Marianne, Shift Happens, Essays on Technology. Welcome, Gene. Well, thank you very much, Emma. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Glad you're with us. Jean worked in IT for the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. What prompted you and your wife, Marianne, to write this book of essays on technology? Well, uh, I guess I should back up just a little bit. I've been writing about technology since about 1981. So I've, I've been writing for various computer publications uh, off and on for years and years now. Uh, so the... Uh, I started thinking back across life, the way you get, you get to be a certain age, you just start reflecting back on yes. all the changes you've seen in a lifetime. And I realized that uh, I had been through uh, just about a, an entire history of technology just, just by living. Uh, and I was kind of fortunate in the, uh, when I was very, very small, I was living on a farm with my uh, mom and my grandpa and my grandma up in Northern Minnesota. And there was no electricity, no running water. And yet it was a delightful home. <laughs> and I saw the electrification come into their district. They used to call it rural electrification back in the day. And, and this was in the, uh, the 50s, the late, the early 50s, it started to come in. You wouldn't think that's not very long ago. So I, I was uh, fortunate to be able to see technology grow right from the base up because uh, in, in the book that we did, uh, the first chapter is on electricity yes. because that's really where the new age, I think, starts. What really separates it from the 19th century and previous times is that a flick of a switch and you've got power. And once you have power, then you can do all kinds of other things with that power. And as time went on, of course, we started to see uh, radio was already in. And everybody had a big radio set in their house and they would listen to it. Uh, we used to listen to the to it in the evenings. Just, and, you know, things like Superman were on the radio initially and the Lone Ranger and things like that were radio plays. And then we saw the saw television come in. And that was very exciting because we used to walk around the neighborhood and look up at people's roofs and think, well, oh, there's an antenna. They've got a TV set. <laughs> it was pretty exciting stuff back then. And then, of course, it blossomed into color TV, and that was amazing. And um, as a music lover, I've always been interested in collecting music of one kind or another. And the formats that music has gone through, and just the, even the last little while, I mean, when, when I grew up, it was, uh, first of all, it was 33, no, it was uh, 78 RPM records. They had about three something minutes per side. And then they shrunk down to the 45s and all the schoolgirls used to bring them to class. And in recess, they'd 
we had the spindle. That's how they'd make their playlist. They'd put all the favorite top 10 songs on the spindle and let them drop one after another. And, uh, you know, and then uh, as I started to get more interested in electronics as a kid, uh, I met some people who were into high fidelity. And high fidelity originally meant one speaker, one preamp, one amplifier, and a turntable. And they didn't have stereo LPs at the beginning. When the LP first came out, it was all mono. And then you would start to see the inclusion of, of stereo come in. And these are the things that we were writing about, these different uh, phases that have shifted the way we think about things like, well, even music. And music today, for instance, what did we go through? We went through the 45s, the 33 and a half LPs, which were very popular and have made a big comeback. <laughs> and then, the, uh, then uh, the CD player and the CDs, so the pure, pure digital sound that some audiophiles didn't like very much, but uh, I always thought was pretty cool. And then you, it got to be uh, that streaming came in. Yes. And then the, this were like MP3s and M4As and files mm -hmm. like that that uh, people still use today. And then who knows what's coming next? Uh, because I understand there's some more new sound formats on it on their way. But uh, the, the streaming audio has had a tremendous effect on things like the music community because uh, yes. artists don't get paid very much anymore. Uh, unless you're one of the biggest stars, if people are listening to your music on Spotify or Apple Music, the, the authors, no, the artists in this case, don't get very much of that. And when they used to have CD sales, it was better for them in a way. So these are changes that we've kind of seen and talked about through the book. And then of course, the, the biggest uh, explosion for us was when the personal computer started to come into being. Yes. And, and that was, uh, uh, in fact, I'll read a little about that at the end. Uh, that was one of the most exciting parts of our lives. And I've always been a computer enthusiast. So uh, I, I was really excited about all this stuff. And in fact, I changed careers and got into IT, and I spent most of my career in information technology. Uh, so I have seen the industry from both the inside and the outside in a sense. So that gave us something to read, to write about there too. But then we started to think about all the other things that were had a big shifting impact on the way we live. And there were things that don't have an immediate, uh, say, reward or conclusion, but have the potential for all kinds of things like the the uh, decoding of the human genome. That was a very big bit of science that it took place and its ramifications into medicine and to uh, genealogy, for instance. Uh, Marion is a great uh, genealogist and she now uses genealogical DNA to help track relatives for both herself and, and other people. So it, it's, it's that whole trend that's expansion I mean, I remember when the first satellite went up and it was Russian, of course, it was called Sputnik 1. Sputnik. And uh, yeah, the very first one. Now they have vaccines called Sputnik. <laughs> seriously, they have vaccines called Sputnik. Oh, I know it really... from my Czech friends. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> and from a satellite the... to a vaccine. <laughs> and we went from, you know, the, the, the Russian, the Soviet Union at the time, put up this, this uh, 
all it did was go beep, beep, beep. It didn't do a whole lot, but it was there. <laughs> it was but progress. It, it was the first one. And then they were the first man into space and things like that. But eventually the U.S. caught up to this too. And, and now you start to look at the landscape and you see that satellite technology has grown and developed so incredibly with fixed orbit satellites all around the earth. It gives us our sat nav, our GPS systems for the cars. And some farmers use them. They have automated tractors that can go plow a field and know right where to do it uh, through GPS lo uh, location. Um, and then because I was working at the museum for many years, uh, I, I got, of course, very interested in archaeology. Uh, it's impossible to work in a museum and not get interested in archaeology. I, I would say so. And, oh, my. Uh, but uh, uh, archaeologists are using satellite uh, imaging now because it, it, some of the uh, sensors that they have on board the satellites can penetrate through the Earth to a depth of about six meters or so. And that means that they can start to see outlines of cities and villages that didn't even know were there. That's amazing. But, uh, both in the uh, rainforest and on the Delta Nile in Egypt, uh, all over the place. Uh, it's just uh, each one of these technological things has really kind of, well, we use the word shift because it just shifts our way of thinking about That things. was my next question. If you could explain <laughs> the title of the yeah. book of essays, Shift Happens. Can you explain yeah. the title? And, well, it's a takeoff on a common expression, of course. Of course. <laughs> but, it, but it does happen. And it happens in ways that we aren't always prepared for or that take us by surprise. Um, I think the possibly the biggest technological shift we've seen in our lifetime is the internet. Absolutely. Change everything. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, from its very humble beginnings for people like you and me, the military was using it for some time, but as it developed out and people like us get a chance to use it too, uh, it has really paved the way for uh, independent writers, independent artists, independent yes, musicians. Yes, uh, And, but you know, we're we lucky. have... We're lucky. Well, we, we have the software tools now to do it. We have the infrastructure to put it out there. And uh, to me, this is just wonderful. I think that's just great. <laughs> to me, it's wonderful too. So how do you feel that over the past 100 years, all these technological advancements, how have huh? they uh, shifted our perceptions, all this technology? How ha has all this technology from electricity to the satellites uh, to DNA, how, how do you feel it has changed our perceptions? Well, what, it, what would it, be the major yeah. change? What would be the major change? There's different major changes, I think, at different periods. Um, when the automobile started to come into being, um, it, it, it was mostly dirt roads, gravel roads. Yes. Uh, people lived in the city to be close to their work and the automobile created the suburbs the suburbs so they hadn't exist they didn't really exist much before that because there was no way to get to work if you lived way out of town so i mean right away it's it's remapped the whole way we look at our urban environment for sure and then the same thing uh is similar i think in impact but broader for the internet itself 
for the it's internet. created information highway as it's called uh, it's a, a two-way device as we're sitting here you know with our computers talking to each other miles apart um, and it used to be that uh, you couldn't even afford to call somebody long distance because they called so much <laughs> and the telephone now there's another big big changer that was a big one first, when it came in uh, first of all, people were starting to be able to call one another. This changed social life quite a bit. Uh, you know, people started to be able to talk to their friends, their relatives on both long distance and local. And then the telephone evolved. And pretty soon we started to get these big mobile phones with the long antenna sticking out. You oh, see yeah, them, those you were see. huge. I remember that. <laughs> I remember that huge phone. You see Molly and Skulder using those in the first season of the X-Files, <laughs> those big, long Motorola phones. <laughs> I like then, the title of your chapter of that, From Socket to Pocket. I love that. <laughs> that is awesome. That is very clever. Or did you steal that? Or is it? No, I, I, I fucked that one up, actually. <laughs> that is a nice but, one. That's a nice uh, one. But I mean, look, look at it now. I have a, 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 an iPhone in my pocket that is more powerful than the computers I was using in the 1980s. And I just carry it around. And Very it's a telephone. Nice. It's a camera. It's a web browser. I mean, what, Everything. you know, I can order pizza with it. <laughs> what, what can't you do with a cell phone? I mean, or a smartphone, particularly. Uh, and it, it just, uh, we're not quite the same as we were. Uh, it was a quieter time before the internet in some ways, mentally. Uh, you might come home and you might watch TV. You might have a TV dinner. That came in with TVs. <laughs> yes. And then you might uh, read a, a real book, you know, like, like a paperback book or a hardback book and, uh, or watch a favorite TV show. But uh, everyone back then watched the same shows because there were only three networks. <laughs> so everybody saw Lassie and they saw the Ed Sullivan show with the Beatles and things like that. So there was that kind of, there was a cohesiveness about it. When you went to work to the water cooler and talked about last night's TV shows, everybody had seen it. Now it's so fragmented, so dispersed. Uh, we would get wonderful shows out of things like Netflix and BritBox and all the various uh, uh, streaming services. Uh, but uh, it has changed the, the tempo of life. It has changed our expectations that we can just go flick a button and be there. It has changed. Uh, remember, you used to wait for the summer reruns if you missed a show because there's no way to record it. Oh, <laughs> there was no way to record it. Oh. Yeah. And see, then, then along came the VCR and people started taping shows. That, well, taping. that was new technology. <laughs> But that was a long time ago, too, taping of yeah. the shows. That's right. That's right. And, and now I can, uh, uh, again, I, I use the, uh, the iPhone example, any smartphone. I can watch these movies right on my phone if I choose to. I mean, that, that is a remarkable convenience. Uh, and maybe it encourages us to see a lot of life as kind of on-off switches. That's just a, an idea that just hit me right now. <laughs> but So you yeah. clearly mention in your essays the pros and the cons of each technological advancement. 
How did you come to these conclusions? Was it from your personal experience through your IT career or both? Tell us well, how was, you uh, came to these conclusions. Right. Uh, it was, uh, it starts out uh, with autobiography, I think, you know, where we, we looked at our own lives and uh, thought about the technologies and how we interacted with them at the, at, at the time and what cultural molding those technologies had on us. And then uh, being in IT, I was very uh, uh, present for a lot of the computer revolution, but uh, it also took a lot of research. So we didn't uh, just come up with things. Everything we thought we'd talk about had to be verified. You know, is this, is, is this really true? Is this what we have? Uh, you know, if what we're thinking about that does is, are we off base or are we, do some of the authorities who write about these things uh, point out the same things? And, and that it was, a, it was a combination of research and personal experience. Okay, on the transportation subject, it brings joy to some and anger to others, right? Depending <laughs> on your character. Some people swear behind the steering wheel, angry and, and swearing at the other drivers. And I have a first-hand experience from my husband who does that. But, oh, I, I do understand that. And I think we all experience... <laughs> but as you conclude, uh, transportation does have a stronghold on the North American psyche. So how would you describe us? You already said that we're used to getting everything at the flick, you know, flip of a switch. How else would you describe us? That the automobile well, is so well sure. catered to us and the internet that we literally yes. absorbed it like a sponge because not every culture did that. Europe was a lot slower in this, so describe us. Oh, uh, I don't know if there was ever horse carriage rage, but there sure is car rage, isn't there? <laughs> there sure is, and I know about it firsthand and physical, right? Not just swearing, but gestures. Our, our, you know, what, what happens is we, we build the infrastructure and, and uh, the automobile created a tremendous amount of infrastructure in terms of road systems, freeways, and, and of course, city passageways. Now, you get near a city, you're going to get into traffic jams. Even small towns, some of them uh, have a five minute traffic jam. But, <laughs> but you get near the big cities and your commute, which you might do in 45 minutes can take you two hours. So one of the things that it has really put us behind the wheel for that, unless you live in the city and you have access to good public transportation, that's, that's a little bit different. Then you can uh, just change the pace of it a little bit, I think. Um, I'm usually to think if that is not the case, at least not in the USA. Uh, ah. If you live outside of the major cities, you are 100% reliant on your automobile. So we 100%. Live in yeah. It becomes a necessity like food and water out in the it country. Does. We live out in the country and you can't get anywhere without your car. Right. So it's <laughs> just... With a, that, what E.B. White once said, he says... Uh, 
everywhere that you want to go to, you need a car. <laughs> and it's true. Yeah. It's just, uh, uh, it, 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 you know, unless you're, unless you're blessed with good public transportation, um, you're pretty well stuck with having to use a car to get from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, cars are kind of neat. You're in your own private space. You get to yeah. see a lot of beautiful scenery. You get uh, to go for a pleasure <laughs> ride, for a joy ride. <laughs> and, and of course, the, the, the introduction of the automobile and as road systems develop, like the, originally in the U.S., Route 66 connected L.A. to Chicago. Well, this yeah. was amazing. And people suddenly got curious about what the country looks like. And they started taking vacation trips to national parks and places like that uh, that they would have never thought of doing before they owned an automobile. And okay. so it, you know, and then, like, and then, oh, go ahead. Oh, and then again, uh, then people discovered that you could pull a trailer <laughs> and you cross-country right? camping trips. You became like, uh, you turned into a snail, right? Carrying <laughs> your, your home on your back. Yeah, okay, I that's would right. like to talk about your essay from socket to pocket, because that mm-hmm. is really fascinating. And you write, its impact has yet to be fully understood, though it, though it has been appreciated by billions of users worldwide. So it seems like you have a certain hesitance about the future of the cell phone as you compare it here to Virginia Slim's cigarette. <laughs> you've come a long way, baby. So can yeah. you explain the yeah. hesitance? What, what well, do you think is gonna happen? And already the G's are very controversial. Mm-hmm. And if you could touch on that, because people are really interested sure. in this kind of well, stuff. Well, I think uh, the, the, certainly the hesitancy I see is that people get glued to their cell phones. And it, during COVID, uh, I live in a suburban neighborhood, and it, people have just come out of their houses. They're walking in the neighborhood. They're walking their dogs. They're with their kids. I mean, it's great from that point of view. But one after another goes by glued to a cell phone talking the whole time or they have uh, something like this with the earbuds in and they're talking away i mean the first time i walked along a city street in toronto and some guy beside me started talking out loud you know uh, very volubly to somebody and nobody was around i'm looking around who is he talking to and that was my first experience of somebody having the earbuds and the cell phone talking as they're walking down the street uh, now it's very common. In fact, you can't escape it. And maybe that's the issue. Um, what happens to the family dinner if everybody's uh, addicted, let's say, to having their phones and texting during dinner or talking to somebody or watching something on their cell phone? It's, there are aspects of it which aren't 100% healthy, I think. We need to be able to... Uh, all the way used it technology we need to be able to step away from it too step away from it yeah and have some uh, quiet time but also there are some concerns that uh, first of all a lot of people don't know what the g stands for including myself i did not know what oh. that stands for so it oh. stands for generation generation I found out. yeah yes yep that's and all it is it's just the, a lot of it's people, just a marker 
think that these G's, without knowing what the G stands for, are dangerous yep. to our health. Can you, oh explain, <laughs> can you explain that to us? Why would it be oh. dangerous to our health? Uh, oh, I see. Yes, we get a lot of that with the 5G, don't we? Um, yes, we do. I, I haven't... I've been trying to understand that one for a while, and it, it puzzles me. Uh, there, there, can I put it this way? In this age we're living in right today, there seem to be an abundant number of conspiracy theories running around that people get caught yes. up in. And somehow 5G technology got caught up in this. And I, I heard Bill Gates was putting chips in people and uh, you know all kinds of weird stuff like that. Uh, <laughs> and and seem to be centered around this 5G technology. It just means faster. That's all it means. Faster. That's, That's all. That's all it means. And that it's just it's faster. It's a little more powerful. And, and how does it more get faster? How does oh, it get faster? The the uh, I think the transmissions are probably a little stronger, and the the way that data is compressed, uh, they can put more bandwidth through. And it, it, with it, within the phone technology itself, there's little receivers, transmitters that use radio, basically. Okay. And those those uh, that radio gets a little bit more improved with each generation of phone. And then the the towers, you know, we have the whole network of cell towers to yes. make this all work. Uh, they upgrade, and it's just like, do you remember when uh, you might have used a modem to connect to the internet? No, you, you might not have, you might not have done that but originally when we wanted to get on the internet we would dial up a number and oh, yes, put a phone yes. in a coupler in the beginning <laughs> i used that yes mm -hmm. yeah and and that wasn't particularly fast that wasn't that was slow <laughs> and, like a turtle and then you watch the internet grow and pretty soon you're getting a higher speed and now almost everybody demands to have a high speed internet connection in the home uh, and I think that the cell technology just mirrors that. It's broader bandwidth, it's a little faster, uh, just, just as the internet has become faster, uh, coming into your house on a wire of some kind. It can either be a cable modem or it might be a, an ADSL modem from the telephone company. And uh, I just upgraded recently and now I have a, a gigabit of internet coming in and, and we use it. But <laughs> yes. uh, I mean, that, that's astonishing when we started out at 110 BPS <laughs> in the early motions. <laughs> so clearly your perception is that, or I mean, there is no explanation why people are afraid of the 5G. Well, not that I understand. I, I've, okay. I can't find any truth in that myself. Okay. Uh, uh, there might be things I don't know about, uh, obviously, but... Uh, I just don't see what the problem is. <laughs> okay, wanted to make sure. Then you also write about DNA, a game changer. That, oh, man. Uh, that's yeah. a big one. That's a big one. And it is also controversial. Very well, it, controversial. Yes. So I, I think it will. Go ahead. Yeah. I think it will always remain controversial because uh, it allows geneticists to do things uh, that we might find ethical problems with. And I don't think that's ever gonna go away completely. Uh, I mean, they can, uh, what, we're, what we're looking for, so some major medical breakthroughs to help treat terrible diseases uh, like cancer and things like that. Uh, and we can use, sometimes use these uh, 
technologies to get closer to solutions. But it, what happens if uh, people say, well, would you like to have a, a little bit smarter baby? Or would you oh, like yeah. your kids to be a little healthier than the other oh, kids? Yeah. Or, you know, and you start, you can get into all kinds of ethical boundaries with that. And that they, can, they, can, they can cross species with these things too and make things that are chimeras really. Um, now they do that anyway uh, with uh, things like fruit flies, and things mm -hmm. that we don't have too much ethical concern for. <laughs> right. But but if, if you scale this up to even pets and then start to take a look at humans, then you begin to wonder. And of course, the uh, there's also the danger that somebody could genetically create a virus that could escape and create a, a pandemic. And there are various theories about how COVID got started. Including that someone, that it has escaped from the from Chinese lab. labs. Yeah, now, I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, I'm not in a position to know, uh, but it either came from things like bats or something naturally, or the epicenter of it is pretty close to where that lab is. <laughs> where it, the lab it, is. It makes you kind of wonder just a little bit. And I don't know if we've just, had the full story on that yet. But that's a, that's a case of uh, DNA where if, if that happened, would be a very, think of the devastating impact that has had from COVID worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it is possible that uh, it might've escaped from a lab. We don't know yet. Uh, I'm not pushing that theory by any means. Uh, I'd rather prefer to think it was a natural occurrence. Right, right. But, but that uh, brings us to the vaccine. Both Pfizer and Moderna are based on the RNA. So it's in the kind of same play oh, yes. field. So yes. it, it is also, again, we go that we're balancing the bad and the good and the ugly. That's right. And it, I think it will technology will always be like that. There's always a possibility of misusing it. And if there is a possibility of misusing it, it will get misused by somebody somewhere. Um, well, you look at what happened with the uh, US pipeline, yes. uh, where the ransomware attack came in. Well, these are the bad hats. These are the black hats that are on the internet. And they do some pretty terrible things, like take over the system, shut it down, and demand a ransom before they'll let you rebuild re, uh, it again. Um, it's, it's, it's a little bit scary at times. Uh, and we balance that off against watching your favorite Netflix movie, which is fun. <laughs> which is fun, right? So yeah. it balances out in the end. It does. It does. It, it, something we have to keep aware of and put protections into place. And it's, it's a pity that we have to have antivirus software, but we do. We do. We have <laughs> just to have to, it. Yeah, just to keep those uh, accidental uh, infections of our systems from happening. So that's some of the ways where I see where it balances out. Well, th there, there's some hesitation. I think we started with cell phones, but there's a certain hesitation with all technologies, I think. Uh, that there, There's always some two sides to it, yeah. Two sides to each store. Okay, Jean, would you like to read to us from one of your essays? Okay. I'll, Which uh, one will you choose? I'm going to read a passage from uh, 
personal computers, power to the people. Okay. Okay, because this is kind of fun for me because this is kind of where we came into it all. <laughs> okay. And start, I'm gonna start here with a subheading called DIY microcomputers, do-it-yourself microcomputers. And that's where I'll start reading. Okay. Although large mainframe computer systems have been around since the 1940s, their use was limited to computer specialists in the military, big business, and universities. The introduction of the 8-bit microprocessor chip changed all that. These 8-bit chips caught the attention of the electronics hobbyists. Early experimenters tinkered in basements and garages, assembling processors, capacitors, and resistors onto breadboards as they built the first primitive but functional microcomputers. More enterprising entrepreneurs soon developed and sold digital computer kits from their homes. Assemble it yourself models, such as the Altair 8800, were highly coveted by a growing base of computer enthusiasts. When Harvard students Bill Gates and Paul Allen, who were at school, read about the Altair in the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics, they immediately foresaw a new business opportunity. The price of computer hardware was dropping to the point where selling software to run on them could become a profitable venture. With the sale of their basic computer language software for use on the Altair, Microsoft Corporation was born. Kit owners soon formed computer clubs and demonstrated their new micros and software games for applications they had written. As a result of, meeting, of a meeting of the Homebrew Computer Club in Menlo Park, California, Steve Wozniak was inspired to design and build the Apple One computer. And that's kind of where it started. In the late 70s and early 80s, ready-to-use 8-bit computers such as the Commodore PET, Radio Shack TRS-80, and Apple II were purchased by a new set of users, early adopters. They were attached to the, they were attracted, I'm sorry, to the ready-to-go software for word processing, spreadsheet calculations, and database creation. Marion and I saw our first microcomputers in action at a monthly meeting of the Toronto chapter of the Special Libraries Association in late March, 1981. The presenters of the evening demonstrated how they used their computers. One panelist created computer music using a MIDI interface. Another showed a program for tracking bicycle riding statistics he had written using the basic programming language. But the star of the panel was a Toronto lawyer who demonstrated two hot new programs. WordStar, an impressive word processor, and Visicalc, the first ever spreadsheet program. But he generated the most excitement when he connected a modem to a telephone line and accessed two large commercial databases, Nexus for news and Lexus for legal research. Early in that day, US President Ronald Reagan had been shot. To our sheer astonishment, he accessed the Associated Press Newswire feed which had up-to-the-minute news about the president's condition. As we left the meeting, we looked at each other and said, we have to get one of those. We put aside our plans to purchase a VCR for recording television programs and bought a microcomputer instead, a Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 3. It was a magical time. Computer clubs formed to support like-minded individuals. As interest in microcomputers grew and more people purchased them, 
large-scale BBS systems appeared. A BBS is a bulletin board system. CompuServe, a fee-based North American-wide BBS, offered broader and more advanced services to the ever-growing base of computer users, whatever brand they owned. It offered full-featured topical discussion forums such as SF Lit, science fiction literature, overseen by Robert J. Sawyer, a Toronto-based science fiction writer and personal computer pioneer who later won the coveted Nebula and Hugo Awards for his writing. In addition to discussion forums, CompuServe also offered email at a time when internet mail was not widely available. It implemented an email gateway to CompuServe to uh, the internet and CompuServe was later joined by rivals Prodigy and AOL, America Online. It was AOL's famous spoken alert that became the romantic comedy title, You've Got Mail, starring Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan. Thank you, Gene. Thank you. <laughs> okay, before we say our parting shots, I would like to thank our sponsors, Doc Chavant and Digital Quill Services for writers. So, Jean, what are your parting shots? What would you like to leave the listeners with? Your oh. immense, treme tremendous insights into technology. Well, my... my final word would have nothing to do with technology, but just to writers everywhere, keep on writing. It's never too late. Oh, nice, Gene. <laughs> nice. And my parting shots are read indie, write indie, keep your fingers on the keyboard and your butt in the chair. <laughs> Thank you, Gene. <laughs> Thank you, Gene. My pleasure. Bye.